Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Martz. I'm Derek Smarts. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, what is up, bosses? Episode 288. Johnny, I got you over in Thailand. We're closing in on almost 300 episodes. How crazy is that? Happy New Year, by the way. It's the first time we talked this year. Yeah. Happy uh, New Year. It's been a few weeks now, so the holidays are long gone for me. Uh, I'm in I'm in summer here in Thailand, so it doesn't feel like winter at all. It feels like uh, summer started already. Yeah, I don't think we've uh, recorded one since you've been in Thailand, or maybe the quarterly updates. But how are you feeling about being away from Ukraine? I feel very, like, personally, I feel very relaxed, right? Like, my, my mental health is much better. My physical health has improved a lot. You know, got myself a, a tan and a good exercise routine. But, you know, obviously, every time I check the news and see what's happening, you know, I hear from friends what's happening. It's, it, it's, it breaks my heart. But I don't I don't know, you know, what I personally can, can contribute anymore. Um, so it's, it's time for me to take a little break. Someone else, tag, tagging someone else in to go and volunteer and, you know, make content out there. And sadly, here in the United States the news headlines kind of are less and less that I see. So, I mean, it's obviously still going on probably just as much as it was six months ago, but you wouldn't know it by looking at the media here. Well, actually, it was way worse over, uh, actually over New Year's because Russia knows it's a, it's a big Ukrainian holiday and time to like, celebrate. So just to kind of bring down morale, they did a huge bombing campaign. I think the biggest since the beginning of the war. I, I almost feel like they did Ukraine a favor because it, started to get back in news headlines again because it was so big. Glad you're in a safe spot right now. We're going to actually reference an interview we did a couple months ago when you were in Ukraine. And why don't you tell them about who we got on the show this week, Johnny? So we have Dave Ramsey personality, George Camel, who actually is probably one of the most infamous <laughs> Dave Ramsey uh, personalities, which we'll talk about a little bit later uh, on, on why. Yeah, George isn't always 100% lockstep with Dave, and it kind of got him in, I don't know if I would call it hot water recently, <laughs> but um, oh, obviously he he's... tore him apart <laughs> on one of his shows and says, Who's this guy? We gotta, you know, I got, I gotta, I gotta, you know, give him a spanking, or I gotta give him a talking to. <laughs> Why is he talking about the four percent rule? You know, that that's not what one of the Dave Ramsey principles. But I'm a big fan of the Dave. I mean, of the four percent rule. But I'm also a big fan of Dave Ramsey's, you know, method of getting people out of debt. So, you know, I, I think. Uh, after we do the, the the interview and we do the outro, we'll talk about how that may or may not be able to coexist. I'm also a fan of Dave Ramsey, you know, just for fun. If if I don't have like a podcast I'm specifically needing to listen to, I'll just pop that on because some of their phone calls are just ridiculous. So they're fun to listen to. And George is actually the third Ramsey personality that we've had on the show. Uh, last year, we had Jade Warshaw. And before that, we had Ken Coleman. So it's nice to uh, kind of get the whole crew over here. We're slowly going through all of them. George has his first book coming out actually just came out this week it's called breaking free from broke and it's kind of maybe an updated version of dave ramsey's you know uh very famous book from back in the day with the baby steps and everything i feel like it's kind of the ramsey approach but for a younger audience you know it's not from grandpa dave anymore yeah i could definitely see that and you know it's worth reading and, and giving to you know friends or family who 
are in their 20s or kind of early 30s and just kind of uh, save them from falling in that, that financial debt trap. Actually, I'm, I'm like you. I, sometimes I, I listen to the show, those people who call in, and it's kind of entertaining. You know, it almost kind of reminds me of... What are those TV shows where, where people go and kind of air their 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 beef? I was with, just like, gonna say that like maybe, like back in the day, remember like um like Jenny Jones or like yeah. um, I guess Jerry Springer to an extent. Yeah. <laughs> like you want to hear you want to hear that your life is actually a lot better when you look at these other people if you're feeling down. <laughs> yeah, and also you know it's a reminder of how the majority of people actually live. Yeah, and it's also a kind of warning of how easily we could we could have fell into that same trap because i know that i almost fell into that dead trap you know out of college you know we make mistakes and we all think that we're not gonna be the one falling into debt yet we all know someone who who has done it you know maybe whether they admit it or not maybe maybe they keep it kind of private because it's a bit embarrassing but i've have you know good friends and family members who were like Twenty, thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt. We've all done it. I've had some credit card debt myself. I think I've brought that up on the show. I actually started out with no debt, really, really good, and then fell into it later in like my mid twenties. And then by the time I hit thirty, I was like, "What are you doing? Okay, pay this off." But I think it's it's so easy to fall into that trap, and that's something you guys are going to talk about. We get into you know credit cards, uh, student loans, the big scam now: buy now, pay later. Uh, oh, I hate that so much. Yeah, <laughs> all this stuff. Uh, Johnny's going to cover. Like I said. This was actually recorded a couple months ago, but they wanted to hold off a little bit because George's book is coming out now. So why don't we uh, go back, revisit the interview, and then, Johnny, I think we have a lot of, um, I don't know, discerning opinions about the Ramsey strategy afterwards. Let's let's do it. Hey, bosses, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. The show will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, George, it's really exciting to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. This is an honor. You guys are a big deal. And I, I heard my friend Jade Warshaw was on here and I was jealous that she got here first. So I'm glad we can make it happen. Well, let's see if we can do it even better. So uh, I'm excited to have you on. And c can you just quickly introduce yourself and how you started working with Dave Ramsey? Sure. So uh, it's been a decade now of me working at Ramsey Solutions. And I started as an intern and sort of stumbled into this place as just kind of a broke 23-year-old looking for his first job. And I went through Financial Peace University and it changed everything. I got out of consumer debt. I got on a proven plan. And eventually I worked my way into a hosting role and into a personality role here in the last few years. And uh, I love this place more than anyone can ever know. I met my wife here and she still works here. And this place is really special to me. And I love the impact we get to have every single day. That's awesome. And so you actually like speak from personal experience. You were in a bad financial situation yourself. Oh, yeah. A lot of people think, well, he works for Dave Ramsey. He must be really good with money. Well, not so a decade ago. I was $40,000 in consumer debt between student loans and credit cards. I grew up with immigrant parents who immigrated from the Middle East. And so they made a lot of money mistakes, you know, adapting to the American culture of consumerism and, and debt. And so I found myself trying to climb out of that hole at 23 going, is this it? I was cynical. I thought adulthood was supposed to be great. They told me if I followed this path and I got good grades and went to this college, 
that my life would just work out. But unfortunately, all the money traps I fell for made it really hard for me to enjoy my adult life. Yeah, you know, and actually it's way more common than we would expect because when I was going through university, I thought it was really normal to take out student loans, whether I needed it or not, and just spend it on random things. I, I remember taking a $2,000 student loan check and thinking, well, you know, I don't actually need this for anything right now. Let me use it to buy new rims for my car. That's It's supposed to be cheap interest anyways. And I think a lot of people end up falling for these kind of traps when we're when we're young. Like, like, do you think it's even fair to to give these eighteen year olds or twenty year olds, you know, access to forty grand and say, "Here you go, you could deal with it later"? Oh no, absolutely not. We don't let eighteen year olds make any other financial decision that big. Why are we letting them do it with college? And I think a big part of it is it's a huge money maker for these colleges and student loan companies, and so they're happy to let eighteen year olds sign on the dotted line without ever reading the terms, not understanding interest rates and minimum payments. They're just going, hey, this is the dream. This is, quote, good debt. It's an investment in your future. That's how it's been marketed for decades now. And it's one of the reasons we're in this awful student loan crisis with people clamoring for forgiveness and, and a resolution. You know, speaking on that, I mean, as someone who worked his butt off paying off my student loans early, I felt a bit insulted when there was student loan forgiveness. And I also, but I, more than that, I, I feel like it's going to be a bad example for future generations who then think, oh, I might as well take on this this loan because it'll probably get forgiven. Like, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? Well, I think the worst thing we can do as an individual is put our hope and faith into a politician's promises and into a government program. And so I love people taking control and paying off their own debt or avoiding it in the first place. That's even better. But you're right with this forgiveness thing. People are, are legitimately upset. And I understand they're going, hey, I worked my butt off to get scholarships, to work while I was in school, to go to the state school, to avoid student loans. Or I work my butt off to pay them off. And so you're telling me I've got to pay for Junior's mistake because he didn't know what he was doing and therefore the taxpayer has to take on this burden? Because people think, well, the government's forgiving it. And I'm going, how do you think the government makes money? They don't. They make money from taxpayers and then distribute it. And so it is a, a real frustration. And I also feel for those who fell for this trap, who fell for this whole scheme of student loans. And I want them to get help, but I want them to realize the best help is in the mirror, not in the government. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So to play devil's advocate for a second, I have a theory that it's kind of, it's good for our overall economy to have people trapped in student loans because it forces people to work a normal you know, eight to five job and contribute to society, be good employees. Because I know that if I you know, got out of uh, university, I was 25, I had no obligations, I probably wouldn't stick around those jobs that I, I didn't want to do. I probably said, ah, you know what, I can just go backpack around Asia for a few years, or I can be an artist, or I can do something that maybe isn't very productive to the American economy. But because I don't have any student loan obligations or any debt obligations, I'm free to do so. Yeah, that's true. And there's a lot of people who are in your shoes who are more entrepreneurial, and they either go, hey, I'm not even going to use this degree. I'm going to start my own business. And the degree was kind of worthless. Or they avoid college altogether and go into trades or start their own business. And so there's a lot of people who, you're right, they sort of stumble into some major that they didn't really choose. They just had to choose at 17. I mean, talk about a frightening decision that affects the rest of your life. And then they just stay in this job and they're in this eight to five that they hate. And so, you know, my friend Ken Coleman, who's a fellow Ramsey personality, his whole his whole operation is about helping people do work that they love and make good money doing it. But for some reason, people have given up. They've given up hope that that's even possible for them and that you just got to work for the man, quote unquote, and work for these big, bad, evil corporations. And uh, I got to tell you, I work eight to five and I love it. And I work for a great company with great leadership. And I think there's a lot of companies out there that are like that. So don't lose hope if that's you when you're going, man, I got to go 
get into become a real estate mogul or else my life is going to be terrible. There is a lot of paths to success and happiness, but you got to choose the one that's right for you. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. And actually, I have a feeling that those blue collar jobs that weren't so sexy and wanted you know, during my generation, maybe our generation, I think that's going to make a huge comeback. I, I think being a plumber, electrician or a mechanic is going to be a very profitable, you know, eight to five job that doesn't require a lot of student loan debt in the future. Absolutely. I was just watching uh, my friend Caleb Hammer has got a real popular YouTube channel on finances. And he had a guy on there who is a journeyman electrician now working at an energy company seven years later, making 180 grand. And this guy had no college education. He just got into the trades, worked his way up, studied hard, looked at all the books and worked his way up into this amazing position. And so people like to poo poo the trades and go, well, it's going to be backbreaking work and you'll never make more than 70 grand. I'm going, this guy's making high six figures and loves what he does. And so it really depends on your personality and how you're wired. Uh, not everyone should be in the trades. I don't need to be turning a wrench. I'm much better off here in front of the camera than doing any of that. But we need all of those people to run a society. And so it's a great thing, a great problem to have. Yeah. You know, what's crazy to me is when did 70 grand a year become not a high salary. I mean, because even 50 grand a year, I, I think is a, a dream salary for a lot of people outside of the US. You know? Oh, yeah. And for, for me, I think it's because, you know, we have, and I think you described this in your book, Breaking Free from Broke, we have this toxic money culture. And we can go over uh, some examples that you put in there in the book in a second. But for me, I feel I'm living outside of the US and I look at how people spend money. And you know, people, first off, housing is expensive, right? But I feel like everyone wants to live within a mile of a Starbucks. Nobody wants to live in, you know, the Midwest anymore or any kind of smaller towns. You know, uh, there's plenty of houses out there still for sale for $150,000 or less in the U.S., but nobody wants to live in those places. Oh, yeah. Our standards have become way too high. And uh, part of it is, you know, HGTV. And people go, well, the 1930s, you could buy a house for $2,000. And I'm like, did you look at that house? You wouldn't live there. You're not going to use an outhouse. And so our standards have become too high. And America is number one in consumerism and debt. I mean, we are $17 trillion in debt, including mortgages. And so that tells me we have a very American problem and we can blame all the things. And I walk through that in my book. I walk through in chapter one. Here's all the fingers we could point. It's the Fed. It's inflation. It's the housing market. It's the baby boomers. They ruined it for their other generations. And you can continue down the line. And at the end of the day, you just wasted a whole lot of air because you can't do anything about that. My whole thesis is that there's one thing we can control, and that's us. That's our own decisions, our own daily money choices. And that's all we have. We can increase our income. We can decrease expenses. And that's the only path to financial freedom. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that the, the information is out there now, because when I first went through these struggles on my own uh, in 2008, I had no real resources. You know, I mean, I think back then, if I wanted to live to listen to Dave Ramsey, it would have to be on, you know, I'd have to log in at exactly, you know, 4.30 p.m. on, you know, such and such channel, you know, uh, TV news. You know, there were no podcasts. There were there weren't that many of these books. There weren't, you know, uh, video on demand. There wasn't, you know, YouTube. It's, it's so much easier easier now, but I feel like people are having even more financial troubles now than you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when it was when there was, this information wasn't out there. Do you think people just aren't looking for it? Or do you think, like, what, what do you think the problem is? Well, you know, in, in the digital information age, when we have more information than we know what to do with at the at our fingertips, there's no more excuses to say, I don't know what to do, right? Credit card debt is a math problem. You can't pretend like, I didn't know that if I spend more than I make that I'm going to go into debt and have all these payments with interest. We know. The problem is we can't spend less than we make. And that that's an emotional thing. It's a behavior thing. 
which is why we say money is 80% behavior. It's only 20% head knowledge. If America just thought, hey, if I don't have the money, I'm not going to spend it, we would be $0 in consumer debt. But instead, here we are with trillions of dollars in auto loan debt, trillions in student loan debt. We just hit a trillion dollars in credit card debt. And yet people are still telling me, well, George, you just need to use a credit card responsibly. I can't believe you're telling people not to use a credit card. And I'm going, bro, if your method worked, then way more people would be avoiding this debt. But unfortunately, we are fallible humans. We live in a fallen world. And that means we've got to grapple with the reality that we've got to make really hard choices and be super disciplined. And for me, that's avoiding debt altogether, which is a very controversial stance to take in, in 2023 and 2024. Well, those credit card companies aren't making it easy for people to avoid debt. I remember the first time I went to South Africa, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago, I went to the grocery store, bought, you know, some normal items, $60 worth of stuff. And during checkout, they asked me the question, would you like to split this into payments? And I kind of laughed at the thinking, who, like, this doesn't make any sense. You know, who's spending a $60 grocery bill in payments? And if I can't afford to pay this right now or put it all my, on my credit card now, how am I going to be able to afford to pay this you know, down the road when, you know, when this starts snowballing? Mm. And very recently, I realized that U.S. cards are doing the same thing. You know, my, when I paid for some gas with my Apple card, it asked me, do I want to make installments? And I'm thinking this is a very dangerous road, but it's so easy for people just to click, ah, I'll, I'll break this down into six or 12 payments. Oh yeah, buy now, pay later has taken over. I mean, it's a billion dollar industry very quickly because people go, hey, you know what? I Even if I have the money, let me kick it into payments so I can pay 25% now and free up, quote unquote, that money for later. What happens is they start stacking all of these transactions and all of a sudden they get behind on payments or it just takes too much of their take-home pay to where they're still in the cycle of, of debt and being broke and being anxious about their financial life. And so part of it is just avoiding all of those traps, using your own money, using debit cards and cash now, instead of hoping you have enough money to deal with it later. And even the, I mean, it lives in your head rent free when you have payments to another person or a lender for months and months ahead. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard because, so even for me, I really try never to put anything into to payments on a card, especially if there's any interest to, to be paid because it just never makes financial sense. But I remember looking at a new iPhone recently because, you know, as it is every year, the new iPhone- you gotta have you know, the new phone. Yeah, it comes out and the price is ridiculously high. You know, it's like, you know, $1,500 or whatever, but they always advertise, you know, you can pay $1,500 now, or you can pay just you know forty bucks a month or whatever it is for you know X amount of months. And I used to assume that that had an interest payment built in. But somebody's argument says no. Do the math. It's exactly fifteen hundred divided by those payments. That Apple is charging you zero interest. And to me, being you know financially savvy, I'm thinking you know what? Yeah, I should put that on payments. Invest the rest of the money you know uh, in, into the market or in, even into a high you know uh, yield savings account and get 5% of my money back from it. But I have a feeling that we get a lot of people in trouble and, and that would actually go against the, the Dave Ramsey pr principles. Am I correct? You're right. The 0% interest loans are one of the most enticing for smart people because they're going, George, this is a brilliant scheme, man. I can do the 0%, whatever it is. It might be an iPhone. It could be furniture. I mean, who knows what it is? But the problem is we're overspending and we still have a chunk of our money going out every month to this thing, to this decision we made months ago. And the stats show 48% of people pay off their card balance every month. Now, if you ask people, do you pay off your balance every month? Almost 100% would tell you, oh yeah, yeah, I never I never carry a balance. But the stats show 52% don't pay it off every month. And on top of that, in 2021, researchers at MIT 
did a really unique study using fMRI technology, and they examined brain activity during the moment of purchase with a credit card. Here's what's crazy. They focused on this reward center, uh, and this is the, the area that releases all the dopamine. You know when it feels good to spend? Mm -hmm. It's because of that part of your brain. Here's what they found. So research had already proven that credit cards reduce the pain of payment. You know, when you hand over $100 in cash, it hurts. When you just swipe a card and you take your card back, you don't really feel as much pain. It was frictionless. But this new study added another layer. Not only do credit cards sort of release the brakes on spending, they also cause our brain to step on the gas to spend even more. And so this tells me that spending your own money is really the, the key to financial success. And here's my summary of this whole study. When it hurts less, it costs more. And we really think about that. When it hurts me less, it costs me more. That means the more frictionless, the more convenient it is, the more it's going to cost me in the long run because I just spent this much more. And these buy now, pay later companies brag about this. Klarna on their website is bragging to retailers to use their program because consumers spend 45% more on the average store transaction when you use a buy now, pay later service. So don't tell me you're not spending more. They know you're spending more. They know more about you than you know about you. Yeah. And it's an absolutely great way for them to, to make more money. To, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, they're, they're not stupid. I think it's, it's so funny uh, when I talk to people who are you know, let's say these travel hackers or want to be travel hackers, and they say, "Yeah, you know, I'm I'm basically gaming the system. You can get for, you know uh, these miles or these these free hotel rooms." And I always try to remind them. I say, "You know what? Every single person who signs up for those thinks that they're going to outgain the system, that they're going to beat the casino, and a lot of people will." But these companies wouldn't be as profitable as they are if the majority of people weren't losing their, their shirts. Oh, absolutely. My buddy of mine came to me the other day, and uh, I don't know how he forgot that I don't have credit cards, refuse to have a credit card. And he went, dude, you got to get this card, man. If you spend $15,000 in the first three months, you'll get this many points, which really equates to like $2,000 in cash back. And I'm going, I didn't plan on spending $15,000. And the problem is, to chase that cheese at the end of the maze, that $2,000, you've got to spend way more than you were actually going to, which means you're going to buy things you didn't need that you couldn't afford under the guise of, I'm going to beat the system. And that's what these companies want with all of these offers. That They're not dumb. They're not losing money because you're so smart that you beat the system. And I know this is true because my best friend, last, I think it was last winter, he on the phone, he says, Johnny, I have this dilemma. I need to spend, you know, four thousand dollars more to to make this this uh, minimum. You know, I've been I've been trying, you know, everything I can, you know, could for the last three months to to, to get there. You know, I bought this, I bought that, and I I just I can't get it there. You know, I have a week left. I'm thinking maybe I should go to the Apple Store and just upgrade my laptop, my headphones, and you know, and get a new iPad or something. That's the solution. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, don't spend four grand just to make $400. He ended up doing it. That's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're, we're stepping over a dollar to pick up a nickel, and we're thinking, I beat the system. This is the path. And actually, in, in my book, I have a whole chapter on credit cards, chapter three. And I, at the end, I break down these eight personality archetypes of the credit card people, and one of them is the world traveler. So what you were saying with the points, I actually did the math for them just to help them understand what's really happening. And, you know, normally it takes $1 to earn one mile. We've all seen that, right? Mm -hmm. When you try to redeem those miles, each one is only worth about one and a half cents. So it's kind of like one and a half percent cash back, right? Mm -hmm. That means you'd have to spend $50,000 to earn 50,000 miles, which then earns you a quote free flight that would have cost you about 750 bucks out of pocket. $50,000. 
of net revenue. That's your net take-home pay being spent to get a $750 flight. That is insane. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize this, but that time and mental energy you're going to spend to redeem that flight or to look for that flight that can use those points, you know, that's another cost. And half the time you end up taking a flight either that would be more expensive than you would have taken, you know, if you were actually paying cash or has a, a less convenient route or, or or is with a different airline than if you had just paid cash. Because at the end of the day, cash really is king. Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing. If you just use your own money, you're going to start to be a little more diligent about the flights and you're not going to pay top dollar for that business class flight so you could get a free drink and a little leg room. It's just not worth what you're putting into it. But a lot of people just get excited because that the dopamines are firing in their brain and they're thinking they're winning while they're just making a lender rich so they can sponsor the next Taylor Swift tour. Yeah. We're not winning. They have the skyscrapers downtown and we're sitting here broke paycheck to paycheck. There is a problem. So I'm assuming all these are examples of, of what you put under toxic money culture in, in your book. But can you give us some other examples? Absolutely. So on the credit card side, you know, I've I've asked people, hey, what are the reasons you won't ditch your credit cards? That's the one hill. Even Ramsey fans who go, hey, I love Dave Ramsey. I use it to get out of debt. I can't get, I can't let go of my credit card. And I found there's a few reasons. One, there's the perfect spender. There's the person who says, I pay it off in full every month. I never pay a dime in interest. I treat it just like a debit card. And like I told you with that MIT study, that's factually incorrect. You can't use your own money while using other people's money. And so you can't say I use it just like a debit card. You're going, you're going to spend more. Then there's the rewards redeemer. I never pay for flight for flights. I get free hotel stays. The cash back more than pays for the annual fee. But the reality is these companies do thousands of experiments on consumers every year to get them to spend more, to get them to chase this carrot. And I even interviewed an ex-employee from Capital One and I relay what she says in the book. But it was it was kind of disgusting to see how these companies look at the consumer, look at the customer. And all of a sudden you get an email from them to increase your line of credit and you think, wow, they think I'm so special. Look, I'm so good with money. Look at them increasing my line of credit. We are playing the wrong game. We are stuck in this matrix. And it's one of the reasons people can't get ahead. It's not of inflation. It's not the housing market. It's the guy in the mirror thinking he's going to beat the system. But really, he's just a rat in the maze. So I know this is true because even though I personally still have credit cards, I can't use them in Ukraine. A lot of them are just, mm. they, they don't work here. So I'm forced to use a local debit card to top up. I physically have to withdraw cash from the ATM, you know, from my, my US dollars accounts, Whoa. go in and top it up. And I have to do this every time I, you know, I run low or I run out, which is usually about, you know, once a month or so. And just the fact that I'm physically holding this money in my hand, you know, I, I normally would you know, try to withdraw, let's say a thousand dollars at a time or something. And I have to deposit that. And I, and I, and I, I feel the pain of, of how much I'm spending. And I end up just spending way less money just because I have to go through this process. That is the best case study as to how this actually plays out in reality. You make different choices at the grocery store when you have to physically hand over $200 in cash. You're like, all right, I'll put back the name brand Oreos. I'll go with the generic brand. You start to make very different decisions when it's your money. And I, you can't argue with that. That's not my opinion. This is research. It's science back and uh, it's unrefutable. Yeah. And actually speaking of grocery stores, another thing that happens here, but really in all of Europe and, and parts of Asia is we're not driving these big SUVs to the grocery store, filling up a cart, putting it in our, in our trunk and just driving into our, our two-car garage that's 
has a door directly to the kitchen. Here, we have, I actually have to walk a few blocks, buy groceries, put it in bags, and then carry it back home up three flights of stairs. And I guarantee you that limits my choices mentally uh, and physically of, you know, do I really need to buy you know, X, Y, Z, or should I, am I just going to buy the basics that I need? Oh, you're traveling a little lighter, but it also explains why you're in such great shape. You're, <laughs> you're getting, you're getting your workout in right there. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and the whole country is, I mean, literally the, the obesity rate here is so much lower than the U S and I really believe it's just because people are forced to walk a lot more. Oh yeah. When we see that folks that live in cities are often in better shape because they're having to walk more. You know, my brother lives in Boston, Massachusetts, and he's got a park a mile away on some street parking and do what you're saying. Go to the grocery store, haul it up instead of pulling right into the garage into our convenience centers. Uh, if you even can pull into your garage. If you've noticed in America, we've now turned our garages into storage units because we have so much crap that we don't know what to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to jump into a couple of questions that are, that are asked by our Patreons. Uh, first is from Alex D. He asks, I'd like to hear about some of the best advice he's heard from the millionaires he's interviewed. So these, these are the people who didn't fall into these financial traps and actually were able to, to make enough and save enough to become net worth millionaires. What are some of the best advice you've heard from them? Oh, I love it. Yeah, we we on the Ramsey show that I co-host, we do this millionaire theme hour, and it's really fun. We take calls from real life millionaires with a net worth of one million or more. Let's be clear. That's what that means. They don't have a million dollar income. And we ask them, like, what are the actual steps you took? What are And we look for those common themes because they're all over the map. Some of them, you know, we found in our millionaire study that we did, the largest one ever done in North America, that a third never made more than six figures. And a lot of people have this misconception that you have to make a lot of money to become a millionaire. And the key we found was consistency over a long period of time. Long-term mindset was the key. And uh, my one of the last chapters of my book is called Wealth is Patience, because that is my en entire thesis on wealth, is that it's all about patience. And in today's world, Everyone wants to get rich quick. They're 20, they're 22 years old and they're going, I can't wait till 50 to have any money. I need it now. I'm so broke. I, I need to, I don't want to work the eight to five. And what happens is when you have that tortoise mentality, I mean, the hare mentality instead of the tortoise, you end up making very poor financial decisions and falling for a lot of investing traps and even frauds and scams. And we saw this with the, with the crypto boom, all these coins that were fraudulent or they just tanked all of a sudden after someone said, hey, if you get this coin, man, you're going to 10x your money instead of waiting on the stock market to do its thing. And so that's what it's all about. They just invested in mutual funds, index funds, and paid off their houses. And so it was very basic. It was real estate and the stock market. And even then, it was a diversified portfolio of mutual funds in the stock market. So that actually is a good segue to a question that my co-host Derek saw on, on Twitter. Uh, somebody put a screenshot of Dave Ramsey from, I don't, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10 years ago or something, uh, saying, don't buy Bitcoin. It's, you know, it, it's a scam. You don't lose money. And at that time, Bitcoin was only $500. Well, uh, mm -hmm. how would you re respond to that? Well, you know, that's the one people come at us for and they go, well, have you looked at Bitcoin? It's up a thousand percent. I go, have you seen what it's done over the past five years? I mean, the emotional turmoil you have if you have that coin. And by the way, crypto is 24-7, unlike the stock market, which means you can pull up your Robinhood app and be up at 3 a.m. watching it go up and down, up and down, freaking out with anxiety, hoping that you don't lose your butt on this. And so in the book, I talk about this in the investing traps chapter. And my summary is that cryptocurrency is just Mary Kay for young men. And there's a few reasons why it's like this multi-level marketing hype around it. And the people that are into it are obsessed. 
I mean, it's their Twitter profiles, it's their lifestyle, it's all they want to talk about. And a lot of it, a lot, a lot of the product and profit are hype driven. And I know there are some utility coins out there and we're starting to make a turn there. But the whole business model really relies on new recruits to invest in that coin to get the to get it to go up in value. And so that frightens me that it's not based in much. And we saw Warren Buffett, who's one of the richest men of all time, said he wouldn't pay $25 for all the crypto in the world because he said, what would I do with it? It has no utility. And so he invests in companies that are making an impact on the world, producing great products, which then you know mean revenue on the other side. And we're all rooting for those companies to win. Whereas crypto is largely not there yet. And so I'm not anti-crypto. I just tell people, before you dabble in crypto, make sure you're already investing 15% into tax advantage retirement accounts. And then if you have some fun money that you're okay watching burn on, a, on on the kitchen table, then you can do it and have fun with it. And then if you make money, I'm legitimately happy for you. You know, I used to have the exact same feeling and I would tell people, you know what, the 10% of your, your money, if you want to gamble it, you know, whether it's at the racetrack in Vegas or with cryptocurrency, go ahead. But now I, I think I kind of, you know, even regret saying that and saying, you know what, <laughs> don't gamble any of this because it's, but people don't realize that for every person who has made money from crypto, someone else has to lose money. And, and not, usually not one person. It's usually a four to one ratio, whatever the ratio is. A lot more people are losing money than are making money. And if you're either okay with taking that gamble with terrible odds or, you know, and also potentially ripping off your, you know, your relatives, your classmates, your, you know, the, the other people in the world, you know, that's not, not, that's not something I want to do. Yeah. We have too much anxiety in this world already. Then we're going to add this 24 seven unregulated speculative currency that we're dabbling in. It just feels like it's too much. And I've, I follow this uh, Twitter now X account called Coinfessions. I don't know if you've seen this account, but it's anonymous confessions of folks in the crypto world. And it's really sad. I mean, some of them are heartbreaking. Their lives are destroyed because they put all of their money into this coin they thought was going to be it and ended up wiping their entire finances out. All of their life savings gone. Relationships destroyed. Marriage yeah. is ruined. And, and nothing pisses, is worth that. Yeah. And it pisses me off so much when the re response from these crypto enthusiasts are saying, "Oh, it's his fault for selling out, you know, early. He should have should should have exactly. held. Should have hold diamond hands. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And you know, and what what they're you know leaving out is ninety percent of cryptos go to zero and, and and never recover. And even the ones that do somehow stay safe, even Bitcoin, you know, what percentage of those coins are either lost or stolen or hacked? It, it's really just this uh, really strange part of, of, I don't even want to call it investing, but it's just sure. one of these MLMs out there. Yeah. Well, I talk about at, at the end of the Investing Traps chapter, I talk about the heart of this. I try to get to the actual root of it. And I find that there's really three main issues to these three root causes of these wealth building shortcuts. And it's fear, greed, and pride. That's it. They're scared because they feel like they'll never get ahead. They're greedy because they want to make 100x instead of being okay with 2x. And on top of that, there's some pride thinking, well, I'm the smart one. I'm going to outsmart the whole thing. I'm going to beat the system. I'm going to choose the right coin. And I have at least the self-awareness and humility to go, I'm not that smart. So I'm just going to invest in these four different types of mutual funds in my 401k and let it ride and enjoy my life. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm on the same page. I mean, to be honest, you know, there's a lot of Ramsey principles that I personally don't follow or that I wouldn't even agree with from a financial point of view. Let's say, you know, paying off your your lowest balance lowest credit interest. card. Yeah, lowest balance first. Yeah, but I actually, the, the more I, I, I listened uh, to 
Ramsey's rationale, I realized, you know what? If people were 100% rational when it came to money, they wouldn't be in this debt situation in the first place. So you can't expect them to be rational when it comes to paying it off. 100%. Yeah, we, we can help anyone. And there's a lot of people out there who are for a certain type of person. And, uh, you know, my friend Caleb Hammer says that. He says, well, there's a certain type of person that's the credit card person who can actually pay it off every month. And they're so far and few between. And everyone thinks... I'm going to be that person. But then human behavior comes into play and they screw it all up. And so I found just living a debt-free lifestyle helped me build wealth way faster and helped me get to net worth millionaire way faster than trying to leverage debt and play this toxic money cultures game. So speaking of leveraging debt, we have another Patreon question. This was from Chris Bowen. He says, I'm interested to hear their take on leveraging debt to increase cash flow positive investments, such as real estate or buy businesses, as recommended in like the Robert Kiyosaki model. Uh, I wouldn't consider this household debt like a mortgage on a primary home or credit card debt. Would you still consider this bad debt? You know, uh, so Dave's famous story is going bankrupt back in the 80s after having a whole bunch of real estate that was leveraged. He had about $4 million in real estate. He owed about a million. And in today's world, you go, this guy is crushing it, right? Um, and so what happened was the bank called the notes, it got sold to another bank and they looked up and saw this young guy with all of this debt hanging around. And all of a sudden he went bankrupt because he couldn't pay it off fast enough. He couldn't sell the properties fast enough, even through short sales and foreclosures and all that. So Dave is very risk averse when it comes to real estate. And what he ended up doing as he climbed out of being broke and became a millionaire again and you know grew this company, he ended up buying real estate with cash. And when you actually look at the math on what you can do when you buy at one property with cash, okay, now you have much more cash flow, right? Versus having to pay the mortgage. All of a sudden, you can save up and buy the next property fairly quickly when you have no debt. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, now you have two properties that are cash flowing way more. And you can see the snowball start to roll. And that's exactly what Dave did. Once you have five or 10 properties paid for in cash that are rented, oh my gosh, the world is your oyster. And so I do believe that it's, it's not a bad debt versus good debt thing. It's not a moral issue. I've just found that you sleep better at night when you own it fully and nobody can take it from you. And you've got way more cash flow at your disposal versus hoping that you can make the spread and hoping that it rents out versus uh, not worrying about, hey, if I'm if it's vacant for a month, I'm not going to lose my butt on this. But unfortunately, the calls we take on The Ramsey Show are people who it, we, we intersect their life when they thought everything was going to work out and it didn't. And they're calling us saying, hey, I tried this Airbnb thing and I lost my butt on it. What do I do? Hey, I bought a property before I was ready. And now I co-signed with my old manager and now they want out and I got to sell this place because I can't afford the mortgage on my own. These are the calls we take and people are really scared and they're frightened. And it's all because they thought they were going to have the shortcut to wealth that didn't pan out. So personally, I'm not going to ever have a mortgage on a rental property. If I ever buy a rental property, it's going to be with cash. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I actually almost fell for this exact trap maybe four, you know, three, four, five years ago. I was looking into buying a place in Texas as a Airbnb style rental. And I got cold feet at the, at the last moment because I realized if something happened and I wasn't, and you know, these tenants weren't paying the, the monthly mortgage, I would be personally responsible for a $4,500 a month mortgage. And I didn't want, you know, that coming out of my, my savings account, you know, because, you know, maybe I can cover that for a month, maybe two, maybe three, but very quickly that can put me in a hole from something that was supposed to make me money. Oh, absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, they said, well, it's not really household debt. And I'm going, whose name do you think is on that mortgage? You know, it's not Johnny LLC. You're going to be responsible for that mortgage. And so whether it's business debt or personal debt or rental property, that that's in your name and you're responsible for it. And it 
will have an emotional, physical, mental toll on you, regardless of what you think and regardless of the cash flow. And most people that call into the show, I go, hey, what's your rental bringing in every year? And they go, well, it's about $200 a month of positive cash flow. And I'm going, you're playing this game for $2,400 a year? All of this headache? Yeah. It's not worth it. Go put it in a high yield savings account and you'll make five or 10 grand on that guaranteed. And so it's just generally, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze for a lot of people because they have such little equity and they're getting into it with such little money. Yeah. Absolutely agree. And, you know, even though some would think that, you know, if you get into debt, it's because, you know, you're financially, you know, illiterate or, you know, it's your own fault. And, you know, there's always going to be a percentage of people who just, you know, got into a bad situation, not knowing any better. But I really believe that most people fall into this debt trap because they had good intentions and they had a bad month and they didn't have an emergency fund. That's our entire plan is a get out of debt, build an emergency fund, Begin investing for the future and you will be fine. You will have a financially peaceful life and you can retire a millionaire and you can probably even retire early if you follow what we say. And so it's a very simple plan that works for everyone. The problem is people want a complex plan for some reason. They think we're too simple. And I'm going, listen, man, you can try to follow this very complex path that's riddled with traps and and distractions and noise, or you can just be the tortoise and you can go slow and you'll make it. And you'll probably beat the hare and the hare will probably be coming to you for a place to crash when he loses his butt on some real estate deal. Well, that, that comes to a great last question uh, on Twitter. Frank Rizzo says, well, what about this master plan? This is to kind of hack the the, the speed it takes into to, you know becoming a millionaire. He says, what if I work from home, take a cost of living adjustment and then job hop every year to increase my salary and then invest in individual stocks that have a higher potential yield than the mutual funds that Ramsey suggests? Frank must be single. I'm just going to put it out there because <laughs> okay. my wife, if I had this crazy harebrained plan to be like, hey, every year. I'm going to job hop and put our whole life in jeopardy. And then we're going to move here into a cost of living. It's just complicated. Can it be done? Sure. You can invest in single stocks and you can be okay. But for me in my house, I found that, you know, not I've been here 10 years. So I'm a testament to the fact that you can stay at one company and it's not about this some kind of blind loyalty, but there is some power in actually knowing the people you work with growing up with them, maturing with them. And we are a team here. And I'm not going to say like, we're family, but truly all of my best friends are here. And so there is magic in not job hopping every single year to get an extra $4,000 raise. And if you're actually talented and work your tail off and don't work for a toxic company, you're going to work your way up. You're going to end up where you want to go. And if not, sure, leave. And some people, they're, they're, they've been underpaid for years. And so hear me say, for a lot of people, it's time to leave. You're being underpaid. You're not being treated well. You don't have to work for a toxic boss. Go find that next thing. And uh, a lot of times there's no regret. And they go, this is amazing. For some people, they go, I thought the grass was greener on the other side when I job hopped to this Silicon Valley startup. And now they just folded. And I can't tell you how many people have left Ramsey to go to one of these places. And I see on their LinkedIn, well, my time is up looking for a new opportunity. And the amount of layoffs we've had at Ramsey uh, in history, zero. We just don't do it. We have no debt for the company. We have positive cash flow and uh, we run this place like we would want to be treated. And so, Dave, it truly trickles down from Dave. But I found that you don't have to play this very complicated game to get ahead, to have a great career. If you're really good at what you do, you love what you do, you can make good money doing it. I love it. Great advice. If you guys want to learn more, the book's called Breaking Free from Broke, The Ultimate Guide to More Money and Less Stress by George Camel, the forward by Dave Ramsey himself. George, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, guys. It's been an honor. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey bosses, I have a signed copy by George Camel himself of his new book, Breaking Free from Broke, The Ultimate Guide to More Money and Less Stress. If you would like to have that, all you gotta do is head to our Patreon account. It's investlikeaboss.com. Click become a Patreon. If you sign up or are a current Patreon, check out the post at the top of the page, leave a comment, and it's that simple. If you live in the United States, we will pick a winner at random and you will receive a signed copy of the book. Good luck. First of all, great interview, Johnny. Uh, George is is really great interviewer as well. Obviously, it's his professional job, so we expected him to be good. As far as his book, I think it's it's a lot of kind of speaking to the lowest common denominator like Ramsey is itself. And that's not a bad thing because it blows my mind how financially inept that the general, at least the American public is. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? I don't want to blame Americans for being uh, incompetent or inept or financially unsavvy because we don't learn this stuff in school. You know, we learn this stuff kind of as we go, you know, through TV, through internet ads, Mm -hmm. or just kind of like through trial and error. And unfortunately, most people, I mean, 52% of Americans get caught up in it. And I and I think that other countries are going to have these same problems in the future as they get more credit extended to them. I totally agree. I didn't learn anything in high school, except I remember we had like an accounting class and they taught you basic spreadsheets and like how to write a check, which <laughs> didn't really do anything financial wise. But I, I did recently find out that Ramsey has a high school program and the numbers are amazing, like how many schools they are in. And I think over half the country now has some type of financial literacy course in high school that is mandatory, which I think is amazing and needs to happen everywhere. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it's very helpful. I don't know if uh, it's good for our economy for everyone to be financially savvy. You kind of alluded to that with the student loans, too. Yeah, like we need slave labor. You know, we <laughs> Sadly, need people to yeah. go to college, come out with, you know, Twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of debt, and have to work the eight to five, eight to five job, because if everybody you know graduated college and was like, all right, well, I'm debt free, I can just pursue what I want to do. I can be an entrepreneur, I can be a writer, I can be a vlogger, I can be a YouTuber. Nothing will get done. We need <laughs> electricians, true. we need plumbers, we need construction workers, we need teachers. We just need you know people doing good, good you know blue collar jobs. Like we and even some white collar jobs. I think that's the problem that I see frequently in LA. There's a lot of people with nothing to do and they're not doing anything with their lives because they have someone else paying for them. And it makes you lethargic and not really have purpose. Uh, if if having debt gives you purpose, it's sad, but maybe you might be onto something. Yeah. So, you know, maybe not everyone should be fancy. I mean, you know, maybe <laughs> we need people to buy the latest iPhone every year when it comes out. So Apple and other companies have an incentive to spend all this money in R&D and create better products. Because if people were all financially savvy and held on to their phones and laptops for as long as you know I do, these companies just wouldn't have the the budget to to create new amazing things every year. Yeah, that's a good point. I just dropped 1700 on a new iPhone, but you know, yeah. I guess we Thank you for doing that. But- <laughs> so 
so next year I can buy the iPhone 16, and which will be even better. <laughs> or I can I can ship you my old one and I'll take the 16. <laughs> yeah. So kind of on the same note, let's talk about this whole aspect of Dave Ramsey getting personalities. First of all, he's not getting any younger. I think he's in his early 60s now. He's kind of flirted with retirement. I know that he takes every Friday off now, which he used to, you know, be on every single show. And I think it's really brilliant how he's gathered, I think, four or five other people now to kind of fill in the gaps. And the fact that it seems like his company is as strong as ever, if not even more. I think I saw an interview with him where he said, you know, the goal was, let's say Dave dies today, the company needs to be able to survive and not go under and at least have half of our income coming not f directly from Dave. Well, he said, I think they're up to like 70 or 80% of the company's income is not directly from Dave, which is like astounding because how many shows do you know that can replace uh, the personality or like a band replace a singer? And it just, it never works out. Yeah. Um, you know, that TV show, Everyone Loves Raymond, they had a little bit of a, a, a strike from the other other cast because they were getting paid, some, you know, it was a lot of money still, but it was like $170,000 per episode, you know, which is a ton of money. But Ray, you know, the main character was getting paid one point seven million <laughs> so you know a huge difference but at, at the same time you can't get rid of ray from everybody loves raymond right <laughs> you, can, you can you can literally get rid of anyone else you know like the the wife you know you know dies or you may you know get a divorce you marry someone else the kid goes off to college you know the you could there's some people you can just not even mention them and yeah <laughs> that does happen sometimes too they just where'd that person go i don't know they just disappeared <laughs> yeah. it is it is what it is uh i was just thinking tony robbins really needs to follow this dave ramsey kind of uh method of outsourcing should we because... offer our services johnny we can be like his new oh. tony robbins personalities I've actually uh, been to some of his. I went to one of his conferences where you've, you've preached how much how great it was. I remember. Yeah, this. it was fantastic. Yes. It was fantastic, and I also met all of the um, kind of his underlings, the the ones that are you know supposed to be his like personalities or his his helpers. They are all terrible compared to him. Like not not <laughs> even like it, it was like not even close. I think that someone like George Camel can easily you know eventually replace uh, you know Dave Ramsey. You know if if Dave ever wanted to retire you know there's they're, they're good enough and they have enough of their own kind of personality and brand and, and knowledge where you know it, it'll take some while they're not gonna be as big as dave ramsey but you know they, they can they can do the job yeah i agree they when i tune into a podcast and dave's not there i'm i'm really not sad about it where i'm like i you know i gotta find one with dave in it it's that's not the case but at the same time we can kind of jump into what we teased in the intro of the episode was you still have to tow that company line you still have like the corporate job do you know what i mean yes so when i heard dave ramsey completely you know destroyed george camel for <laughs> talking about the the four percent rule it almost reminded me of like kitchen nightmares where where um what's his name gordon ramsey gordon ramsey you know destroys his like his his underlings you know saying oh you're the worst chef in the world you know you know i need to come spank you with this chef's knife you know like <laughs> i i felt bad and i thought you know is george is george gonna say something but he can't he like literally right. just, he can't you can't go against the, the the boss. Okay, I'm a little confused because I don't know what the hell George is doing doing a three percent withdrawal rate because that's absolutely wrong. I don't. I'm gonna have to find out where that video is and get it taken down because um, that's just wrong. You don't need to have a three percent withdrawal rate. That's ridiculous. Um, or I hope you misunderstood. I hope we didn't put out trash like that. Was it maybe, four to five percent? Like maybe, the no, it shouldn't be four to five percent. It ought to be more than that.
The problem is, is when you go down these stupid nerd rabbit holes in these Reddit threads with these morons who live in their mother's basement with a calculator, and then you then you put that out into the dadgum community, and then people go, I don't have enough money. It's hopeless. I'll never be able to save enough to retire. A million dollars should create for you an $80,000 income, boys and girls. There's also like the concept of a lot of people uh, hassle Dave about his emergency fund of $1,000. If you have debt, he says you should just just keep $1,000 for an emergency and then everything else should go to debt. Obviously, I agree with the part that you need to pay off your debt. And he's and everyone's like, well, a real emergency, most of the time, $1,000 isn't going to cover a real emergency. But his argument is like, it's not supposed to. It's just the fact that there's something there. And the real emergency is that you are in a pile of debt. Yeah. And you know what? I don't agree with everything Dave says as, you know, it being the best move or, you know, being flaw free. But what we have to agree with is his methods have helped a lot of people. Right. And those are people who, if it wasn't for following a very simple plan, they wouldn't do they it. They would, they wouldn't do it. So if you told someone your emergency fund needs to be 12 to 24 months of your, your living expenses, which is the correct number, you know, because it might take two years to get out of an emergency. Mm -hmm. Nobody can do it. No, <laughs> like, not at like, all. Who's going to do this? So, you know, by saying, yeah, $1,000 and then start paying off your debt, that actually makes a lot of sense. And at the end of the day, having $1,000 in cash, you know, or in a separate, you know, savings account that you don't touch in, in liquid funds, that will help get you a long like a lot further than having zero. Yeah. And I, I think his plan works because it speaks to the financially illiterate, you know, anyone that's more advanced and understands these things, first of all, probably isn't going to be in a pile of debt. Or at least I hope not. And I would think probably the average listener of our podcast, isn't going to be in that situation either. You're a little bit more savvy. At least I like to think you bosses are, but the average person, it boggles my mind that some people will get a credit card bill and go, the minimum payment is six, $62. I'm paying $62, even though my balance might be 500. And they don't understand the concept of how this interest adds up. And I don't know if, if it's the corporations to blame on, you know, like trickery, like the student loans, like we brought up when you're 18, like, hey, do you want $40,000? Of course you do. Is it that or at what point do we just have some personal responsibility for ourselves too? Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think, you know, you made a really good point. Most people who listen to Invest Like a Boss don't listen to Dave Ramsey because they've kind of graduated. This is kind of the advanced part where you've probably already paid off your debt. I, I'd be actually really curious to survey everyone, but I'm willing to bet a very small percentage of our listeners are in debt. Most of them are net positive, you know. And, uh, yeah, I would hope so. <laughs> or we've been doing really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, honestly, I, I think I'm always surprised how many people, you know, that listen to us are, you know, already doing very well. You know, I, I think the average American has, well, I mean, it's probably in debt, but <laughs> if they have money, it's they probably have like, you know, $10,000 or $20,000 saved with their total net worth, not including their, their residence. I think our listeners, every time every time we hear from them, is like you know they have you know hundreds of thousands or you know over a million dollars in investments, and I'm always really impressed with that. Yeah, sometimes I'm like, why are you listening to us? You're obviously doing fine. <laughs> <No>. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you know it's be it's because they listen to shows like this that they probably expanded their mind and they've done the research. I agree. Yeah. I think I think the first step is just that you're conscious of it and you're paying attention. Like there's so many people that don't pay attention to things, and that's where you lose control. You just Either they don't want to pay attention or they just choose to ignore their finances. 
Yeah. So I like episodes like this because you can share it with, you know, your friends or your family that might not be super into, you know, higher level investing. And they just need some principles. They just need some basic principles. But I will say this, that our show exists for a reason. And, you know, it's not just us versus Daisy Ramsey. I would say in general, if you are out of debt and you're already, you know, investing a significant amount of money, don't listen to Dave Ramsey for investment advice. Listen to him for getting out of debt advice. That's what he, what he's great at and he is good at it. I'd probably almost go as far as saying to Dave to stay in your lane or to admit when you're wrong because his, you know, kind of whole rant about- He's very stubborn. He's very stubborn. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. I was listening to it. I was cringing. I was like thinking he's giving terrible invest uh, investment advice saying, you know, like throw out the 4% rule, you should be spending 8% or even, you know, you know, or, or higher. And we've done the math and there's something called the Monte Carlo was a simulation where they've calculated if you withdraw 8% of your, you know, total net worth, you know, starting at retirement age, how long will that, that potentially last, uh, adjusted for inflation, you know, using historical data of, you know, of having up, up years and down years. And over, over half the time in 30 years, you have zero left. You'll be broke. So you, yeah, you'll, you'll be broke before you die. And the whole, the whole point of the 4% rule is to maximize your chances or minimize your chances, I guess, of, you know, dying broke, right? right. So, <laughs> you know, maximizing your, your chances of surviving and having something left over before you, you know, before you expire. So, yes, I know the 4% rule is very conservative. Yes, it makes sense that if you've made 12% this year, that you can withdraw 8% and, you know, spend it, you know, completely fine. You're, you're still, you know, up 4%. But what he's not taking into consideration, or at least he's not talking about because it's it, maybe it's too too complicated or high level for, 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 for most people, and definitely for his audience, is that you, ha you can't just look at how much you're making this year, you, you have to look at, you know, the next 20, 30 years, and also uh, just for inflation, because if you mm -hmm. just take out, you know, let's say 6% and never uh, adjust for inflation, yeah, you'll probably be okay. But if the $60,000 uh, a year right now sounds great, you know, most people can live off of that. But in 20, 30 years, it's not going to be anything. The spending power of that is going to be so much lower. Totally agree. And if you don't know what we're talking about, uh, I'll put a link up to the the conversation that, that Dave kind of went off um, about George on it with the 4% versus 8% rule. It's really, it's really interesting that, I mean, Dave sticks to his guns. I'll give him that, but he, he's really adverse to change too. Yeah. But you know what? Sticking your guns, I don't think is actually a good thing. I think it's, it's being, just being stubborn. Like whenever they say, oh, this politician is flip-flopping, I'm like, that's not a negative thing. That means when they have new information or the situation changes, that they will uh, They've evolved. Go, yeah. go with what's working. Yeah. yeah. So like I said, most of you out there, I hope, are not in debt. But I bet you know someone who is. I certainly do. And for that reason... Share this podcast, like Johnny said. And also, I have some copies of George's book available for you to share with your broke friends. Once again, his book is called Breaking Free from Broke. And I will give away some copies, but you got to be a Patreon. See what I did there, Johnny? <laughs> mm. so if you sign up for our patreon we like to re reward them first those are like our top bosses no offense to you freeloaders but patreons are pretty awesome so if you want to sign up you can do so now investlikeaboss.com click become a patreon plan start at five dollars a month like i said there's giveaways in there there's all kinds of posts, our full quarterly updates sam and johnny's portfolios all the moves we're making we're posting i don't know 
two, three times a week, if not even more in there. And if you got questions for us, you can do so in there. Suggest guests. The list goes on and on. I think it's well worth the value. And that's one thing we haven't adjusted for inflation. It's been the same price for too long now, we Johnny. Need to, we, we need to bump that up. Uh, <laughs> actually, this weekend, I'm going to be meeting up with Sam Marks and previous guest Kevin Shi from Hong Kong. Nice. And in the Patreon, there's a way to come and have drinks with us. And episode 300 is going to be coming up this year. I think me, Derek, and Sam are going to get together somewhere in the world. And the Patreons are invited to that as well. So, you know, that's just a big thank you to for, for supporting. And, you know, we just want to have a small group hang out in person. So check it out. Patreon.com slash invest like a boss. Totally looking forward to that. All right, Johnny, I am going to head out because it's really late here. I'm not used to these nighttime podcasts. Well, I'm just starting the day today. So <laughs> thanks for, for having a little chat with me. And thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. All right. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.